Father, we give you thanks for another Sunday to come together as your people, as brothers and sisters, as true family, thanking you, praising you, because you truly are good. Even if we're in the midst of things that are difficult, we, we hold to the truth that you're good, that maybe it doesn't feel like it at times, but you are good. God, I pray that that reminder is the necessary reminder for whoever's just facing that time that is so hard. And I pray that it's a reminder to those of us that maybe we're not going through it right now. We're a reminder that you are the one that provide all things. You provide us with everything good. Even the things that are difficult, therefore, are good. So, God, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Father, I pray that as we open your word that you are the one that takes over. Father, I don't want these to just be my opinions or my agenda. I want it to be your word. And so as I prayed before I got up here, before I, when I prayed on my prayer walk this morning, I prayed the same thing. The Holy Spirit, you would fill me with the ability to teach your word accurately, correctly, passionately. But Jesus, it's got to be you. Holy Spirit, it has to be you that changes and transforms lives so that we are followers of you who are doing what you call us to do and enjoying you in the process. So God, we humble ourselves, keep us teachable and humble to receive. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. If you've been going through uh, Colossians with us, this is kind of the summary. I was thinking about it over in the chairs, like how would I summarize Colossians? And I feel like when you look in the book of Colossians, it starts with, well, Paul's introducing himself and then he gets real quick into Jesus. Because you have a bunch of false teachers that were in Colossae saying, okay, there's this secret knowledge, there's this mystery that only we know because we've gone through the steps, and so you should follow us in order that you can have the secret mystery, just like we know the secret mystery. And here comes Paul going, hey, I've heard all these reports, and he's writing this from prison. I've heard all these reports. Let me just tell you, the mystery is Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? And he gives this huge explanation of Jesus, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the preexistent one over all creation, talking about what it is that Jesus accomplished and how he can be reconciled to God. And so there's this, in the beginning, there's this us and God mentality and how our theology and doctrinal truths that we hold to actually impact our lives the way that God wants them to impact us. And then you see Paul go from this understanding of who God is, what it is that he's done, the mystery of Christ, that there's really not this secret knowledge that only some people get, but we also have to acknowledge that we're all on this journey and path with God. And it kind of came up this morning in, in a D group time that I was having that, like, I, want, I wish that God would just sit there and go, I want to give you everything right now. You could know everything about me today. But here's the thing. We're not ready for everything yet. So when you think growing up and the things that you're learning in school, you couldn't learn college-level calculus when you're a fourth grader. It's just not going to happen unless you're one of those brilliant kids. Yeah, then you get to get it. But the rest of us, we're just trying to catch up. And when it comes to our walk with Jesus, remember this is a walk. Why do I say, hey, we should be reading the word? Why? Because this is how God reveals truth to us. Well, I've read it once. Then go again because he's going to reveal things that you missed the last time. The things he, he wasn't ready to show you because you weren't ready to get it yet. So it's this constancy with him. It's constantly being with him, remaining in him, abiding in him because we actually love him and want to know him better. And so we spend time with him, it's, it's us and him, and then all of a sudden it moves out into practical ways, and how it is that we're supposed to be what? Like husbands and wives, how are we supposed to love each other and submission, and what does that all look like? And then parents and children, what's that look like in this whole relationship between parents and their kids? And what does it look like within, what, like within your work and, 
And then it's, it gets very practical. And now we kind of move into this place. And so if I continue, and it won't be on the screen yet, but if I start with verse 2 again, continue steadfastly in prayer. See, we can get into the, all the things that we're supposed to be doing, but I think Paul brings us back to, here's all the busy stuff. Here's the things we should be applying, but do not apply these things without coming back to what? Prayer. So continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. As at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to, pro- to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So here's the thing. I understand this thing about Jesus. The things that he's revealed to me is blowing my mind. I've seen how it is that following Christ will impact my life. It impacts the lives of other people. But remember, it always comes back to Jesus. We always want to know and love him most. And so shouldn't the next, the next thing, shouldn't it be this? Because I've seen who God is, because I see what it is that he does and how it is that he impacts life. Man, I want to pray and pray for what? That God will open doors for me to impact other people, that they might meet Jesus, that they might experience life the way that God wants them to experience it. That their perspectives might be changed, that when they hit the difficult times, they don't just think that it's bad luck, but they actually think and go, okay, God, I can hopefully submit myself to a sovereign God because I'm terrified of what it is that I'm going to go through or what it is that I'm facing. It is so hard, but I need to look at your word and say, okay, consider pure joy whenever I face trials of many kinds. Because now there's a purpose behind it, so it's changed my perspective. Isn't it amazing how perspective changes us and how that change can become so healthy and beneficial. And then we want other people to know, so God, would you open up doors that can't be shut of effective ministry, that people would come to know Jesus as Lord, to submit to his lordship, to receive salvation, and that they would become disciples who will go make disciples. Isn't that what he begins to pray? He prays, man, pray steadfastly and continuously. Don't give up. And pray with thanksgiving. The reason we can pray with thanksgiving is because God's always victorious. And even if I don't see his answer yet, I can thank him because it's coming. And then you get to this part in verse 5. And before we get there, I just want to remind you. So back in the 7th or 8th centuries B.C., Micah wrote these words. And if you've been brought up in the church or you're an Awana kid and you learned all these Bible verses, this is one of those key verses that you'll remember when I get to it. Because it's kind of like if we could... If we could bring down this following Jesus down to kind of a simple, quote-unquote, form, what would it be? What would it look like? See, I think the first two verses kind of say, this isn't what he's really going after. In Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 6, not verse 8, we'll get to there in a second, but verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? It's like, okay, you want all these sacrifices, and this is what they were doing. People of Israel were doing sacrifices, but here's the thing. They were going through the motions of them. But it wasn't out of adoration and love for God. I mean, the people of Israel were in rebellion. That's why a prophet is there to bring them back. So what is it that God wants? Look at verse 8. He has told you, O man, or O people, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Did you see it? 
Do you see how it starts with like the innards first? It starts with me. Here's what God wants you to do. And you can present these sacrifices. I mean, they're kind of, a, they're kind of put there in the Old Testament. But to just go through the motions and not be the person that God actually wants you to be, what's it really doing? What's it accomplishing? So to read it again, he has told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Or down outward expressions of piety when, when what God truly wants are obvious signs of joy-filled and love-inspired devotion. It's not just these outward signs of piety that God's saying, just go through the motions and do the rituals and ex, you know, experience the quote-unquote traditions that you're used to in a religious setting. He's like, no, no, I want, you to, I want you to pass by those for just a second. I want you to come back to the heart between you and God. There's supposed to be joy Friends, if you're part of the Bible reading plan in Luke 24, is this week's reading or part of this week's reading, joy was mentioned twice in that chapter and it stood out to me. One was connected to the resurrection of Jesus. Remember the women show up to, to prepare his body for burial. The men are all hiding in a room. The women show up and it's weird because the, there was a couple guys that got his body ready to put him in the tomb, but you know what happened? The ladies are sitting there going, nah, they're not detailed enough. So we're gonna go take care of what it is that they screwed up. And so they go, they're ready to put his bury his body, but he's not there. And then they're freaking out. They're terrified. It says, but they ran away terrified and with great joy. Guys, I feel like it's only within the walk with Jesus that you can experience terror and joy at the exact same time. I mean, it's not just like, oh, they were a little bit overwhelmed with emotion. No, they're freaking out. They're terrified. They just, they were just told, I know you came to see Jesus. He's not here. He's risen. Isn't it beautiful that each of the gospel accounts, that was what was repeated by all of the writers. They all said, hey, make sure you write this in the story. He's not here. He's risen. He's not here. He's risen. Guys, the resurrection of Jesus is the thing that gives us the most hope in everything that we face. So they see he's not here. And angelic beings talking to him. At least there's a couple. Oh my gosh, this is freaking us out. And he says, go back and tell the disciples and Peter. I love that. Like, go tell the disciples, but make sure you tell Peter. Because, ah, I remember when he said, even if all these others like fly away, if they just take off, I never will. I would die with you. I know he said that. And then he denied me three times verbally. And I told him it would happen. So make sure Peter gets the word. Make sure he hears this. I will see him again. And can you imagine Peter going, what did he mean by that? Did he mean this is good or he's going to give me a whooping? Like, which one is this? Aren't you, aren't you thankful that Jesus knows we'll sin more than we think we will? But he's the first one to say, hey, make sure, you, make sure Brian knows. I want to see him. Uh-oh. No, it's always good. The resurrection caused them to go, caused them to, caused them to freak out in terror while still experiencing joy. So they took off running. So you see that part in Luke. And then all of a sudden at the end, in chapter 24, the second to the last verse, it says something like, and after they worshiped Jesus, that's a huge statement for me. Why? Because for cults that sit there and go, no, Jesus isn't God Almighty. He's just a God. He's just a side God. But here's the thing. Or he's not God at all. I sit there and go, okay, so if God's sitting there going, hey, I don't share my glory with anyone. I don't share worship of me with anyone. And yet they worship Jesus and Jesus didn't stop them. Therefore, Jesus must be God. So they worshiped him. They returned back to Jerusalem in joy. 
And you know what they did after that? They met every day in the temple to praise God. Every day. Can you imagine? Guys, the worship schedule's changing. I expect to see you here every day. Brian, we have jobs. I don't care. You're going to be here. Can you imagine I said, thus saith the Lord, I would never do that because God would strike me dead. But can you imagine just getting together every day? Hey, we're going to worship God every day. We said to go, well, no, because look how much we have going on. And we honestly think that they didn't either. Do you really think that none of them had jobs or kids? But it's like, this wasn't like a have to. This is, oh my gosh, like he came back from the dead. Let's worship. Let's get together. Let's praise God every day. Let's just go for it because they were driven by joy. Not a have to, but a get to because Jesus came back from the dead. In that, in that one verse in Micah, just do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with him. And yet I bring up this, this quote of a, an author that, just, that God used in my life to get me out of legalism and into the grace of God. A guy by the name of Brendan Manning, he wrote, he wrote many books, but this is a statement that he made. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. He's like, well, he taught you grace, huh? Yeah, he taught me grace. What a powerful statement, right? And when the world looks at the church and doesn't see much of a difference in the way that we handle ourselves or conduct ourselves or the way that we quote unquote fight, when they see no difference, then we sit there and go, you should come to Jesus. He makes a difference. And the first question they're going to ask is, what's the difference? Like, what difference is he actually making? And can we answer the question? I mean, just personally speaking, in the last year, can you see where God has grown you and changed you and pricked at things that he knew and you know that he needs to deal with and you need to change? You're like, oh, that's not comfortable. Can you see in the last five years where God has brought you out of something and into something? Can you see growing more and more in the fruit of the Spirit? Has your love for people or peace or joy, has it been increasing? Has your patience, oh, that's the big one. Has your patience been growing or are you still getting freaked out and frustrated Quickly, is there any difference in the way that we love people? Because when there isn't, that's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I was two different people sent me this article from the Pew Research Center. And friends, this should move us. This should move us as followers of Jesus. It's time to wake up. And they tweeted it real quick. They kind of tweeted the summary, and it says this. As recently as the early 1990s, about 90% of U.S. adults identified as Christians. Now, honestly, I'm going to be honest. I think that number is high in reality because I'm pretty sure if 90% of a nation is really following Jesus, it would look a lot different. I remember the 90s. Those were my days. Those were my glory days. Those are high school, going into college weird clothes that have come back that you wish would never come back and fluorescent stuff that should never be on clothing and hairdos that are bigger than ever and now I don't even have it to make those things. Like all that stuff I wish would never come back but it's coming back full circle. But I remember the 80s and 90s and I remember it wasn't perfect. But people would sit there and, and they would check the box. Yes, I see myself as a Christian. I see myself as a Christian and that's, that's easy to do. But we'll just go with the numbers that are presented so in the 1990s, about 90%, in 2007, the share, 
The share was at 78%. Today, that number is down to 64%. Since 2007, the share of adults who identify as religious nuns, not like nuns like you think in the Catholic Church, like nuns would be, the, the religious nuns are those who have no religious affiliation. They're just kind of given up on the idea of religion. They're open to spiritual things, but I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not connected to any kind of religion because pretty much it's all garbage. But spiritual, yeah has grown from 16% to 29%. And so church, can I ask us a question? Why do we think we're winning? Why do we think we're winning? I think if I remember the, the whole article correctly, I think by the year 2070, I think is what they said. Like us, and not even as a majority, but the, the idea of Christianity in the States will be minuscule. You sit there and go, it's over. No, it's not. And here's why I know. Because Jesus started with 12. He started with 12. And he did three years of ministry. He said, and then thousands came and, and then thousands left. How do I know? Because at one point he preached this message in John chapter 6. It says, anyone who doesn't eat my flesh or drink my blood. No, you can't come with me. The thing is, they all took it literally. Can you just like, hey, you see these? You see this? Oh, no, so you see this? Unless you eat my flesh... And unless you drink my blood, no, 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 no part with me. They all thought he was talking about cannibalism. He said, how do you know? Because they all left except for the 12. This is a hard teaching. I'm not going to chow down on some dude's bicep because it's a spiritual experience. And so when Jesus says it, it's kind of hard. Then he loses a bunch. Then he takes a cross and everyone abandons him. You get to the book of Acts. 120 followers of Jesus meeting in an upper room. And millions and millions and millions of people through, through the last 2,000 years from that moment that the church started have called themselves followers of Jesus. So I do, do I think, oh, these statistics are what's going to happen. Only if the church stops doing what we're called to do. That's what I know will fail. But God's church will always outlast everything. But followers of Jesus, it's time I think we've been put into this slumber of salvation, this salvific, is that a word? That sounds fantastic. If it's not, I just made it up. Write it down. Boom. Trademark. This salvific slumber. I'm saved and I'm just waiting for heaven and the enemy's just kind of putting me to sleep. He's brushing my hair back. Not mine, but yours. And then he's, he's just chilling. He's making sure that we're super comfortable as a church. Oh, you don't need to say anything. If God wants them, he'll get them. It's not on you. Somebody else will tell them. I wonder if we've been put to sleep by the enemy all the while. The whole, all the while, the Lord wants to wake us up to the mission that we've been called to. And the mission that we've been called to is not just to get people back to a Sunday morning worship gathering. The mission, and you hear me say it often, and I'll continue to say it, guys. I'm convinced as a pastor, my main, my main job is to care for God's people. And within that caring of God's people is to equip the saints for the works of service. That this is, not the, this is not the place, the only place that God's work happens. This should be the place we all come together to celebrate what we've seen God doing in us and through us throughout the week. This is where we come to get recharged and to celebrate together and to worship together. But this is not the only place of ministry. This should be supplemental. 
Guys, we should be moving forward. And the greatest invitation that Jesus gave is out of Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, where Jesus looked at these two guys, found them while they were working. After they're done, they're, they're, they're cleaning off their nets, and he just simply says this, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they dropped everything and went after him. It's like, how oh, would I not? The rabbi, the, we, the, Jesus has a reputation. It's already starting to build at this moment, and Jesus to invite, follow me. And the same invitation is today. They dropped everything to go after him. Do we? Is it joy or is it simply obligation? And when we do go after him, how do we sound and what is it like? Do me a quick favor. Watch this video. We'll get back into the passage. Why are we here? At another Christian conference to hear from another Christian preacher, teacher, or YouTube sensation about how we can fulfill the Great Commission, but is it working? Do we really go back to our states, cities, and neighborhoods and bring to life the myriad of sermons and workshops that are sitting Indian-style in our minds bored, staring at a wall in our brains full of post-it notes about what discipleship is or isn't while the members of our bodies stay paralyzed to the pew? That was a double entendre, by the way. I am a poet that knows all too well about knowing a lot and doing nothing. And whether you know it or not, we are all quite skilled at unintentional discipleship. Like a father whose fist makes war with his wife's face daily in the master bedroom of a two-story home down the hall, the noises and bumps remind his six-year-old that monsters, monsters aren't in closets anymore. They sit at the head of our dinner tables, clueless to the truth of how wonderful a job they're doing at transforming a child into a future murderer. See, we are all fathers and mothers often unaware of what we are inadvertently teaching the infants that will swallow the eternal life for the first time in our church's children. Children of God, that is, watch us read and study and preach and even feast on sodium-rich crackers, a cracked portrait of the broken skin of God. Drink juice or wine doesn't taste too much like blood, though red words bleed from our speech, but have they seen the resurrect in our actions? If not, why is that? Could it be that we, us, Born-again human beings have exchanged parents and apparently become the children of Father Time, living between the ticks and the tocks, making sure there are no seconds left for anyone else but us. What slaves of Christian busyness we have become. Does the Great Commission only apply to missionaries? We don't have time to disciple right now. Our hermeneutics course is about to start. Someone is watching you, watching and learning how to do everything under the sun but love. Love like God, remember him? The one who had men and women that he gave up his life for. Not just his body, but his life, his time, his days after the moon rose from the grave, they were his schedule. Their souls is what he watched and shaped and loved around the clock. They saw him live life, learning how to please God by example. They followed in his steps a map into eternity, even now. At the right hand of the Father, he is yet to leave us walking along the gospel. We must follow before we lead, lest we lead them into somewhere where God is trying to snatch us out of. Let us make war with the ticking in our minds before our time runs out. See, the invitation was simple. I mean, Jesus shows up, spends intentional time with at least 12 guys, and there's a whole lot of people that started to follow as well. Even within those 12, there were three, and this is all that he simply was telling them by his actions. 
When he says, follow me, watch what I do, listen to what I say, see how I respond, watch how I love. And that should lead to us understanding just do what I do. Not just watch what I do, but do what I do, say what I say, respond how I respond and love as I love. And that's the invitation still today. It's simple but not easy. I get that. But it's simple. Just follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Jesus saying it over and just follow me. Just come with me. I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you fishers of people. Follow me. Come with me. Come with me. Come with me. It's simple. It's not easy, but oh, it's worth it. He's worth it. See, in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 3, it says, there, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. Did you hear that, Christian? Bearing with one another in love. In other words, God is saying, hey, I know that you're going to tick each other off. Bear with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. See, back on, on May 8th of this year, Colossians 1, we went through Colossians 1, starting verses 9 to 14, but I wonder, do you ever remember it? Did I? I didn't. I was like, oh yeah, I, I, I didn't even know if I preached this passage. I wasn't sure if I preached this one. I knew I didn't preach the one afterwards. I couldn't remember if I preached this one, which is kind of a bad sign. Like, did I really apply it? Listen to what Paul says. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This week, to think through. Tomorrow, I wake up, God, help me open a ministry door that can't be shut, that I would have power and effective ministry for you. But may I walk through that door in a manner worthy of you. See, when Jesus is the focus, it's not just something I'm supposed to do, but it's a someone that I adore and I love and I'm all about him and he's the resurrected Jesus and therefore I'm moved and pushed forward. I'm moved forward in joy to follow him. It's so different than just being a good Christian. And how is this manner worthy of the Lord that's fully pleasing and what's it look like? Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And here's why we walk in a manner. Here's why. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. He did it. Who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Do you notice who's done all the work? It's him. I mean, he's the one who qualified us. He delivered us. He transferred us. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Why do we live in a manner worthy of Jesus? Because what it is that Jesus has done for us. So my question, are we moved by our redemption? We've been bought back by God. He paid the price, laid down his life that we could be redeemed are we moved by that? Are we truly grateful for the forgiveness that we have received? Does it blow your minds, follower of Jesus? You are forgiven. You're holy in the sight of God. You are seen as holy as Jesus is because you belong to Jesus. The things you haven't even done yet, forgiven. Like, oh, people will take, take, people will take advantage of that grace. Oh, it's true. But it doesn't mean we don't continue to teach the grace of God. 
But here's the thing. If I truly, truly love Jesus and I truly, truly appreciate eternally what it is that God did for me, I do not want to take advantage of his grace. But I want to live in a manner worthy of Jesus. And so we go from those two questions. We go from that passage. We jump over here to chapter 4, verse 5. Watch. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Walk in wisdom, and here's the key word, toward outsiders. Now we can sit there and say, okay, what that word toward means, it's like, okay, so when you're around them, like when you're around them, just be wise and act good, act well. But it doesn't mean you have to engage them, you're just around them. But guys, I don't know why this word toward stood out to me more than any of the other words. But walk in wisdom toward outsiders. It's not like, God, just bring whoever you want to to me. And when you bring them to me, then I'll do it. No, no, it's just not that. It's that awkward moment where in, that, in your mind you have this thought, go up to him. Oh, I don't know if I should. Just go up to him. You even, maybe the thought wasn't even beyond that. Just go up to him. Mm-mm, mm-mm. What if I have to talk? All the introverts. Yep. What if I have to talk to him? What am I going to do? What am I going to say? What if it's just hello? What if that's all that God wants? What if it's nothing? You just walk up and they say hello and they walk away and God goes, just checking to see if you'll be obedient. That's all for today. Good lesson. You did a great job. You did a great job. A plus for you. See you tomorrow. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That Greek word means to the advantage of. So for the betterment of those that are around us. At or nearby. But isn't it easier to order everything on an app? Because if you order on an app, you don't really have to talk to anybody. You can just get it and... It's sitting there, I'm not going to lie, I love it. Like you order the food and everything's in line, you just kind of pass by going, I'm the man. I'm the, boom, just walk out with my stuff, look at me, all you people, I'm not going to tell you about the app because I don't want you to do this. I like a line, I like to feel a little bit superior over you, Am am I confessing too much? Is that pride? But isn't it amazing, we just want everything quick. It's done, we order it, boom, and sit in there waiting. We don't have to talk to a soul, boom, back into the car, back to our house, shut the door, and yet we have not walked toward or around or nearby any outsiders. And then he says, making the best use of time. He even says in Ephesians 5.15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Remember years ago, this question was, was posed to me. So he, I think he said, hey, what do you want Jesus to find you doing when he returns? And now they sit there and go, oh, crud. Like if he could come back at any moment, I just got to read the Bible constantly, never give up. And if I start to fall asleep, just pretend like you're reading it. And constantly reach out to people. Never, have a, never just do anything on your own. You can't have any fun. You can't just like enjoy a day at the beach. You can't do that. You just got to go, 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 go. This is what I want. But what if we sit and go, what if I don't have to scroll as much today? I don't have the time to do it, but we have the time to flip open a phone to look at stuff. We can binge watch a whole show in an afternoon evening, can't we? Am I making the best use of my time when I do that? Am I, looking at, am I looking at time as opportunities to impact people, making the best use of the time that God has given to me? Or is it just my time? Guys, that phrase, best use, it means to buy the time. It also means to make use of opportunity, but to work urgently and to do with intensity. This isn't just, I'll oh, do whatever you can. 
This is God, give me wisdom that I might actually buy, quote unquote, buy this time and make use of every opportunity. You ever notice how well you treat something that you had to pay for? Man, when I had to buy my first car, I treated that thing. My parents are here. I treated it a lot better. I think the, I had this little Toyota Corona my grandpa gave me. Corona, not Corolla, Corona. It had like two horsepower, but I got to drive it. And I would hit the floor and try to just gun it. And it never downshifted, so I just felt like I was going fast, but I wasn't. But man, boom, I gotta get somewhere fast. Where do I gotta get? I gotta get to Del Taco and get lunch. Bam! But all of a sudden, when it's my car and my gas I have to pay for, oh, it's different. I'd rather just pedal. Be like the Flintstones and get going. If you have to buy the time, don't you think that you would take care of the time instead of just waste it? And I'm convicted by this, just like everybody else. I don't know that I do a great job with this. I want to be better. He goes on in verse 6. He says, let your speech always be gracious. Always be gracious. What does that word mean? Always means always be gracious. Oh, but what if you're in a fight? Be gracious. Graciously fight. That doesn't go together. Here's why I think the problem is if my only goal in a fight is to win, but not win them to Christ, then I'll fight like everyone else. But when I look at Jesus and how he took on, guys, he took on the demonic, he took on hell on a cross and was gracious. Guys, even while he's walking the cross, he's taking care of his mom, he's taking care of the women that are around him. Well, he's hanging on the cross. He's saying, hey, John, this is now your mom. And mom, this is your son. While on the cross, while he's been attached to it, he's begging for the forgiveness of those who are attaching him to the cross. And yet we'll justify why we don't have to and why it shouldn't be. Why? Because we want to win. Because who wants to come in second and definitely not last? Always, let your speech always be gracious. And I can't stand that verse because it's so hard. But let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Seasoned, not piled with. Guys, who, who are the salt lovers? I know that for some of you, go, salt, sin. No, no, no. Salt lovers, that's just unite. That's unite. I'm liking me some salt. Who's with me? Come on, put them up. Don't be, don't be ashamed. Like, let's be charismatic this morning. Like, we're filled by the Spirit. Bam, give me some salt. But even if you love salt, if something has too much of it on, you're just like, ah, I think my heart just... Did something. <laughs> Too much, right? To not have any salt. It's like, uh, kind of missing out. It's like, Brian, that's healthier. I know. I know, but I want some salt. And salt in that day preserved food, that what I speak should be life-giving for the other person, not just for me to give my opinion. Always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That means I should probably be meeting more than one person. And I should be sensitive to who they are and what they believe and what they know and what they don't know. In other words, I need to get to know the person that I can introduce them to the person of Jesus. And I may need to be sensitive of a person's struggles in their past because they've dealt with this, but this person has never dealt with this. And so I want to go, hey, tell me your story so that I can tell you the greatest story. 
It's not just get them saved and move them, move them on, but man, tell me your life. Because that's how Jesus did it. But how I ought to answer. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now watch what he says next. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Guys, that is a big statement. And here's why. If I'm not a follower of Jesus and I come walking up to you and I see that there's a difference in you and I walk up and say, hey, what's different about you? Like, why are you so different? And all of a sudden as we get to know each other, it's like, well, you're a Christian? So why do you believe what you believe? Like, what is it about what you believe that I should know this, because I've had people tell me that I should become a Christian. So what is it about what you believe? What is it about, in, what's in that book that would actually make you change your whole way of living in obedience to this God that's out there? Why, why do you have this hope? What would your answer be? Because here's the thing, if it's all just an experience, well, everyone can say they've had an experience, but do you know enough of the word to say, according to the Bible. And then I can say, and this is what God did in my life, according to what he's written. And why do I always want to go back to the Bible? Here's why I want to go back to the Bible. Because in Isaiah, Isaiah writes this, I think it's around chapter 55, I think. He says, the word of God does not return void, but it accomplishes everything that is sent out to accomplish. I want to go back to what does the word say, because the word of God is going to convict and encourage. It's going to move people toward, hey, I've got to think through this. The Holy Spirit's going to do his work and let him do his work. But this is what the Bible says. But do you know what the Bible says? So when you give, when you give your answer of hope, it's grounded on the foundation of truth that's found in the Bible. Or is it simply this? Well, when I was 16, I gave my life to Christ. And ever since then, he's, ever, he's given me everything I've ever wanted. That's not the gospel. And that's not truth. Because when that's proclaimed and someone's life doesn't follow what happened to you, they think either God failed them or they're not good enough for what it is that you got. But if I can sit there and go, oh, could we meet? Could we chat? I mean, this is a big question. I'll buy you lunch. I'll buy you something. I'll, I'll buy you something nice. I'll buy you a square Wendy's burger. Like, let's get together and let's hang out. What would you say to the question? Because we're always supposed to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. And, then we'll, and those who ask the question, they might not always be polite in their question, but will I answer with grace? Because I'm supposed to every single time. It says, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for, good, for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And she go back to verse six, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person, every single person. Guys, you ever have one of those little experiences where you're kind of looking at a room that's filled with a bunch of people and you kind of sit there and go, God, you are so creative. Has anyone, I know that for some, some of you guys are horribly, you're horribly artistic and you actually can draw stuff. I'm that person that's like, I'd ra I can't do it from my head, but I, I can take a picture and kind of do some, do some stuff with it, but not super great, but at least enough to kind of get me into a little bit of trouble. But if I have to try to do something from just memory or from my own imagination, it's amazing how every single person pretty much turns out looking the exact same way. 
Boys and girls look the same, fe- same features, just one has long hair and the other one has the same part down, like on the side. That's it. And then you look around and go, God, look at what you did. And you've been doing this since you've created people. And yes, I know that we all have, what's that name, doppelganger or whatever that thing? Like you're, you're, you have a twin somewhere in the world. And that, maybe that's just God going, hey, it's a treasure hunt. It's like a game. Maybe that's why he created it. But guys, think about it. Every, every single person has a different fingerprint. Are you kidding me? God's, God's cre- creation, creating us, he is so creative in what it is that he does. Different personalities, different perspectives, different senses of humor or lack thereof, different ability to comprehend deep spiritual things or deep knowledgeable things. I mean, they're all over, all over the gamut. And here comes God going, I want you to get to know each of them and be able to explain to them with the same grace to all of them. But in order for that to happen, it starts with hello. And let's get to know people. Isn't it amazing? God opened the wide, open wide a gate for effective ministry. Just don't make me talk to anybody. God, would you just do this massive revival, but don't make me be part of it. But what if we said, God, do this massive thing, revival, open wide this gate and give me the boldness and give me the grace necessary to introduce people to Jesus. To introduce, to bring them to a place where they want to follow Christ and then they'll go out and make disciples who want to follow Christ. And we just continue the multiplication so that when we read some kind of tweet from the Pew Research Center saying that, hey, Christianity is going to be dead by this date. What if we sit there and go, okay, so maybe the wrong version of Christianity will die by then, but maybe the Christ followers will stand up and get the job done and bring back what the church was supposed to be. What if revival can come because the church woke up? We simply did the thing that we were called to do, which was what? As the worship team comes back up, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. My question is this, as they come up, are we fans or are we followers? Which one would we prefer to be? Would we, do we prefer to be a fan where we can kind of sit in the stands and we can just watch as all those little Christians are doing things? Or, oh, Jesus, do your thing, and we're just sitting here watching. But man, we're good at throwing out critiques and throwing out comments of why that wasn't right and why that wasn't good. And are we just fans applauding on what it is that God's doing rather than jumping into the game? Are we followers? Jesus did not say, hey, be my fan. He actually said, come follow me. Come follow me and I'll make you. And then think about it. Just stop for a second. I don't think this has ever hit me. Follow me and I'll make you. What if he just stopped there? What if he didn't say fishers of men? What if he just stopped? Follow me and I'll make you. Man, let that sink in. I follow Jesus and he makes me into who he wants me to be. And what a journey. But along the way, friends, we cannot grow as disciples of Jesus if we're not out making disciples. You cannot grow deeper with Jesus to the depth that he wants to take you if you are not making disciples. It can't happen. It won't happen. That is part of the process of discipleship is to make disciples who will go make disciple makers. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray. Would you please fill us with a boldness and a passion for people that don't know Jesus Never let us settle for simply reaching people for Christ, putting that in quotes. 
But may we be obedient to the very clear call that you gave to us to go make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them to obey, but to make disciples, learners, followers, who will then go and make disciples. God, I'm so thankful that the gates of hell can't withstand your church, but Jesus, turn us into the church that you called us to be. Turn every church into the church that you call us to be so that I would never have to read another tweet. I pray that the next tweet that I read about the church or the followers of Christ and followers of Christ and the growth of followers of Christ would be something that terrifies everyone because you're on the move and your church is right at your heels following you exactly where you go. God, thank you for the, the invitation. You're worth it and we love you. Be pleased as we sing this last song to you. We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone who agrees says, Amen. Love you all more than you know.